listening to From the Friars podcast, the community of Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, headquartered in the Bronx, New York City. My brothers and sisters, I greet you with the greeting of St. Francis. May the Lord give you peace. Amen. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. I thought the uh, opening hymn today was going to be it's starting to look a lot like Christmas. We got the nativity and the, okay, it's starting. There's a battle happening here at the shrine. I want you to know I'm praying for snow every day. And Trevor and Tom and our, our good maintenance guys are praying for no snow because you know how hard it is to keep everybody safe. And so uh, guess whose prayers are more powerful right now? So if you have any intentions, Tom is sitting in the back. You know, he'll pray for your intentions. You may want to go buy a lottery ticket, Tom. I don't know. This is your lucky day. Um, so brothers and sisters, welcome. Um, it's, you know, so close to Christmas. All the candles on the Advent wreath are lit. The light is shining. Jesus, the light of the world, is about to be born. Um, praise God. It's just such a great time of the year. We just love the the everything about Christmas, the decorations. We think of the creche, the little nativity. We know it was St. Francis himself who had the idea in the little Italian town of Greccio to do a live nativity. He was the first one where they had real animals and they'd set up an outdoor altar and they had mass and the, the stories are just amazing. And uh, when people saw the baby, this little statue of the baby Jesus come to life in St. Francis's arms. And um, so just as Franciscans, we just love Christmas. I don't know. Uh, next year that we may have to do something big and crazy here at the shrine for Christmas. It's just we just, it's in our blood. Okay. Um, but here we have uh, Christmas. So in my homily today, I want to make two points, then tell you a story, and then we'll end with a prayer image. Okay. So that's what we're doing. So first of all, the first point is this. We um, see the story. It's so familiar to us of Christmas. And pretty much everything we know is what we're learning from Matthew and Luke. So Mark and John don't necessarily cover the, this aspect of the story, but Matthew and Luke are the ones. And in Luke's uh, Gospel of St. Luke, it's mostly what appears to be the perspective of the Virgin Mary. It's kind of her version or her perspective of the story of the conception and the birth of Jesus. And then in Matthew, which is what we've just had today, it's kind of like St. Joseph's perspective. And it's just amazing how they complement one another. And uh, that is something that you see with all of the four Gospels. They're very unique on their on each of their own, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but yet complementary to one another. We get more of a, a beautiful and deep and rich kind of perspective on Jesus and who he is and who he was and what he taught, the whole thing. And uh, that is so true here at Christmas. And you know, I remember um, studying, you know, in seminary, we, we take classes on, on the four Gospels and studying all of this. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's just worth noting that um, every, every aspect of the Bible, but particularly the Gospels, really have been scrutinized over the years by scholars. Every little line and detail has been kind of put under the microscope and investigated and looked, and looked at, and, and it's really worth noting that this is true. These things are true. What we know from the times and the culture, things that have been discovered with archaeology, and even the writings of what we call extra biblical writings so other writings of the time that that but are not from the bible 
um, seem to bear witness that what we're reading here is true. It's not make-believe. The story of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, all of that stuff, it's not make-believe. It's true. What we believe is true, and it's real. And, and what we can tell from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is they were serious guys, and they were interested in doing real history and really preserving for us in a written record what really happened. And we believe it was the Holy Spirit who inspired them, just as it was the Holy Spirit who helped Jesus be conceived miraculously in the virginal womb of Mother Mary, the same Holy Spirit inspired the writers to preserve for us the record of what happened. And it makes sense. Like, why would God come to our earth and, and take on our human nature and, and give us a teaching, but then leave us no means that that teaching could be preserved and handed on? Like, we're living 2,000 years after the fact, how would we have any idea of what God did 2,000 years ago? So it makes sense that the Holy Spirit, who um, came over Mother Mary when she conceived Jesus as a virgin, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied, but it's the same Holy Spirit who came upon Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other authors of the New Testament to, you know, to be inspired to preserve for us the details of, of the whole story. Um, we think of all of these things are quite beautiful and, and really something, huh? The story of Christmas. I mean, Christmas is just the best. Oh, I just, I love it. And um, so that's kind of like the first point. Um, and I remember uh, several years ago, there was a movie about the nativity and it was being advertised. It's going to be historically accurate because you know how often the Hollywood movies get religion wrong and it's oh, so frustrating, right? So, so there was this movie, it was the nativity and it was going to be historically accurate. And I was home with my family and my brother and I were going to go see this movie. And he took along his little daughter. She was seven years old at the time. And um, she was terrified. The whole movie was so scary to her. And uh, so we go back to the house and, and there was this, it sparked this conversation in my family. It's like, yeah, the details of what happened there really are kind of raw and scary. And um, we had a beautiful conversation as a family just about, you know, the whole thing with Christmas. Obviously, it's very heartwarming and beautiful and it's the holidays. And But the, the real story, there's some details there. And again, it's it's consistent with what we know about Herod and people uh, of the time. And uh, so we had this kind of conversation about it. And um, sometimes if I'm having a bad day, I like to tease the Lord. And I like to say, Lord, you gave us the so-called joyful mysteries of the rosary. You know, you can imagine Mother Mary. She's pregnant as a virgin. So Joseph is going to divorce her quietly. Well, in that culture, adultery could be punished by stoning. She was like in danger and vulnerable, you know, joyful mysteries, you know, and imagine traveling on a donkey for five days when you're nine months pregnant, you get to Bethlehem and there's no room at the end. The Posadas, right? You know, like go away. There's no room, you know, like so-called joyful mysteries. Um, you can imagine uh, St. Joseph and another dream in the middle of the night. And the Lord tells him, Get the baby and Mary and leave for Egypt. Now, they woke up and left. And tradition holds that they left Bethlehem minutes before Herod's soldiers arrived to kill the holy innocents. And then they're off to Egypt as migrants, you know, in a foreign land 
the middle of the night. So so-called joyful mysteries, right? And then there's the losing of Jesus in the temple for three days. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the details are kind of, it's, it's real. It's raw. It, it, in one level, it's kind of messy. Okay. So that's my first point, that this is not make-believe, that these are real things. And that's why we believe, because it's real, right? Our faith is not based off of some sort of make-believe story. It's real. And um, because of the scrutiny that the Bible and the Gospels have received, it really has stood up well that it, it is um, the scholars, as they've tried to poke holes in the whole thing, it, the, the story stands very, very believable, very trustworthy accounts. Okay, that's the first point. Now, my second point, you're going to think I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. So while it is true that the whole Christmas story, all of it is real, it is also true that the whole thing kind of feels like a fairy tale, right? Christmas. Think of the stable, you know, and the manger with the hay and the animals and the angels appearing to the shepherds in the field, singing glory to God and the arrival of the three kings with the gold frankincense and myrrh. And this, the whole Christmas story has that feeling of a fairy tale. You know, those details are so, I mean, how many of us, you know, imagine Christmas as a child. It's so exciting, so interesting, so heartwarming and beautiful. And um, particularly the way the church celebrates with our customs, our traditions, our beautiful Christmas carols, going caroling and making Christmas cookies and decorating and, you know, all of that stuff, which the, the secular world calls holiday, happy holidays, and I always say, well, which holy day are you talking about? It's Christmas. Cue the Christmas cliches, right? Keep Christ in Christmas. The best way to do that is to keep mass in Christmas. Okay. But so, so I'm not contradicting myself to, to acknowledge that the whole story has that feeling of a fairy tale. So I want to tell you about a, a very interesting thing that happened. It was September 20th, 1930. Three professors from Oxford University were going on a walk together. There was a guy named Hugo Dyson. There was a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. And there was a guy named C.S. Lewis. And the three of them went on a walk that day. And C.S. Lewis was, at that time, an agnostic. He was an agnostic. And as they're having this conversation and they're walking, they get engrossed into this whole conversation about myth and metaphor. But imagine Oxford professors, right? <laughs> and the conversation was so rich and deep and beautiful that, that it went all the way till four in the morning. And we know about it because C.S. Lewis later will write in a letter like what happened. He had a conversion that night because of something that J.R.R. Tolkien told him. So we know J.R.R. Tolkien, a devout Catholic, but he's the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you know, fantasy literature. One of his sons became a Catholic priest. And evidently, as they were having this conversation, and C.S. Lewis, as an agnostic, was struggling because he said, so sometimes the details of Jesus' story, like we feel like there are similar kind of vague details in other stories of mythology from other cultures. 
and kind of as a cynical agnostic person, he's like, how do we just, you know, this whole thing with being born of a virgin or dying and then coming back through resurrection, you know, these kind of like mythological metaphorical stories that you'll see little bits of those stories in all kinds of other mythologies and, and whatnot. And so in the conversation, Tolkien had said to him, but in the story of Jesus, it's a mythology that's actually also true. That those stories that are somehow connected to the deep human psyche, because you find them in so many cultures, that they actually happened in Jesus. And so it's not that it's now evidence that the story of Jesus isn't true. It's the opposite, that the story of Jesus really is true. And it, not only does he fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, which we've been looking at all of Advent, he also fulfills the archetypes because human storytelling comes to fruition in the real story of Jesus the Savior. And C.S. Lewis writes that he had a huge conversion that night. He goes on to become an extremely important author in the English language. His, many of his books are so amazing. He was a devout Anglican Christian and um, very you know, Catholic-leaning, you know, C.S. Lewis, and wonderful gift. And, of course, we know his Chronicles of Narnia, right, his fantasy literature. And we know Tolkien with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And it's from them that we kind of get that perspective where we can acknowledge that there is an aspect of the Christmas story that is really for children. And, and I remember the teaching of Jesus when he said, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And it's almost like every year at Christmas, through the liturgy of the church, through our practices and customs, we're being invited to get back in touch with our younger self, back when we weren't so cynical, back when we were more capable of awe and wonder and to be moved by the beauty of the baby in Bethlehem. I have a couple of more points. <laughs> the other day, I had an encounter with an old lady. <laughs> and uh, I'm talking to this old lady. We ended up having this great conversation. And at some point in the conversation, she says to me, you're a priest? And I'm like, yes, you don't act like a priest. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, what? how do priests act or whatever? And so she she's, shares with me the story. She's a fallen away Catholic. And her experience of priests and of the church when she was little was intimidation. It was scary. And the only thing she remembers about being Catholic is that it was obsessed with guilt and fear, that God is somebody to be feared. And um, don't come too close. And you better just stay on your knees, repenting of your sins so you don't go to hell. And like that's, And I can't tell you how many times... Older people have told me that story. How many times I've heard that story. So again, a few days ago, this lady is sharing with me very honestly, very sincerely, her memory of being in the Catholic church as a, as a young child. And so I told her that it really, as a priest, it really breaks my heart to hear that story because it is so the opposite of the truth. And particularly at Christmas, we remember that God wanted to be close to us. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's like, why did he do this? Why did he come as a baby? Why does he come to us as a baby? It's so we won't be scared. So we won't be intimidated. He comes to us in a non-threatening form. 
what happens when you see a baby? It's a natural instinct. You want to go and pick up the baby and hold the baby in your arms and then squeeze the fat cheeks. That God would come to us in this way, that God would need his diapers to be changed. What? You know, so that we would not be afraid. For God so loved the world. He loved the world. He came, what did Jesus say? I've come not to condemn the world, but to save it. That the offer of forgiveness of sin is there. In John 6, Jesus says, I will reject no one who comes to me. Come to me, all of you who labor and are burdened. You know the rest. And so that's the message of Christmas. It's the love of God. It's the God who comes to us, who is Emmanuel, who wants to be with us. That was his plan all along, that he comes to us in such an attractive and non-threatening way as this baby in Bethlehem. Um, So now we'll conclude with a prayer image. So in praying over the readings and just praying over Christmas, I had a prayer image, which I share with you in particular as we get ready to receive him in Holy Communion here at the altar. So you know when you think of Christmas, there's an image that we all have burned into our minds, and it's the image of the Blessed Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. That is one of the most tender and enduring images we have. And so hold that image in your mind of Mother Mary holding the baby, the baby who happens to be God. And there's another image. So in the East, they have these icons, these paintings. And there's an image of Mother Mary's end. So we know that the church teaches that she was assumed into heaven. In the West, we call that the assumption. And in the East, they call it the dormition or the falling asleep. And there are two traditions about how it happened. One tradition is that at the end of her life, the Lord, like Elijah, just assumed her right into heavenly glory. And the other tradition is that she died. And then three days later, she was assumed, her body was assumed. When the Pope pronounced the teaching, he did not comment on those. He left it blank. So we don't know how it happened. But in the icon, it's so powerful. You see the body of Mother Mary. And all around her body are the 12 apostles. And right above her is Jesus, the grown man, the risen Jesus. And he's holding a baby. It's the soul of Mary. And that image is so complementary to the image of Christmas, this mystery of Mother Mary holding the baby Jesus, who happens to be God. And then in the assumption or the dormition icon, the moment of her death, the Lord Jesus holding her soul like a baby. And in my prayer this morning, I was just captivated by these two images next to each other. And um, I think it's so powerful because he is holding us. He holds the whole world in his hands. And um, particularly when we receive communion today, um, we have a moment of prayer and intimacy where we have the Lord within us truly present. So the Holy Spirit comes to the bread and the wine and changes it into Jesus. We just allow the Lord to hold you. The Lord, as Mother Mary holds the baby Jesus, so Jesus holds us. We are his children. We are the little ones that he has created and called and saved and wants to hold us close to himself. 
and it's beautiful. Amen. I'm going to elaborate on that during Holy Hour after Mass, if you'd like to stay. Kindly be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Again, we offer a sincere word of welcome to everyone. Welcome. We also welcome all of you who are watching us over the internet, Facebook, and YouTube. Welcome. They, um, the Shrine team are taking these talks and they're being put out over the internet as uh, Advent reflections. And so they'll be available. The past ones are available as well. I know on the YouTube channel of the Shrine, uh, Our Lady's Blue Army. But um, so we're here together. Um, how many of you were just here at Mass also? Okay, all of you almost. Okay, so in, in the uh, Mass, in my homily today, I had told a story. I had asked for um, a, a prayer image for us. You know, we need prayer images to help us as we seek to pray. We seek to go deeper into the mystery of God's love, into the mystery of Jesus, to the mystery of the Advent and Christmas season. So we need those images. And you know, Christmas is rich with images. You know, the, the crash, the stable, there's the baby in the manger and uh, Mother Mary and St. Joseph and the angel and inviting the shepherds to come and the star in the sky, the arrival of the three wise men from the east, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, the, the whole kind of event of Christmas, the nativity, the birth of our Lord, is just filled with images which are, are really um, beautiful and profound and wonderful. And in my homily, I had shared the story of the, the image of Mother Mary holding the baby Jesus, complemented by the image of Mother Mary's assumption, her dormition, Eastern Christians with their icon traditions. And uh, one of those traditions has Mother Mary, her body, the 12 apostles are around her body, and above her is the Lord Jesus, a grown man, and he's holding a baby. The baby is the soul of Mother Mary. And how that image placed next to the image of Mother Mary holding baby Jesus in Bethlehem, how those two images complement one another in, in our prayer it's really something, huh? And um, so I want to share with you a little bit about how I got to that image and what it might mean for us. And it has to do really with what I would call the big picture. The big picture. God's plan. God's plan, the big picture. All along, it was always God's plan. Before creation, there was just God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, the Lord God was perfect, lacking nothing. And so, but there was a plan to create. So for us, we, we've been taught, we understand that creation is distinct from the creator. And, but in God's plan of creation, it wasn't because he was lonely it wasn't because he was lacking something and so he needed to create. There was no necessity. What motivated God to create anything was his love. And in the pinnacle of creation are the angels and the humans. We're persons made in the image and likeness of God. 
capable of being in a relationship with God. We will live forever. And so to have us with him was always the plan, was always the plan that God wants us to be with him. That is really beautiful. And it's so helpful to return to that reality. That this was God's plan, that he loves us and that he created us to be with him. We have those great prophecies we hear during Advent, the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah, that the Savior would come and his nickname would be Emmanuel, the Hebrew word which means God with us. Emmanuel. This was his plan all along. He wanted to be with us. And that he would come in this way, some master stroke, a genius plan born from eternity. This is what he wanted to do. To come to us in this way, it's really something, really beautiful. And so to couple that image, the idea of death being not the moment where you die, but the moment when you're born, your birthday into eternity, the moment of your death is very profound. And we have that image of the Lord Jesus holding the soul of his mother Mary, who appears to be like a little baby in his arms, complementary to this mystery of Christmas when he literally was a baby in the arms of his mother. And the early church fathers in their poetic theology would always be pondering, the one whom the universe cannot contain is contained within your womb. O Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God, this incredible mystery, it's really something. And um, so I want to tell you with a little story that kind of started me on the journey of seeing things this way. Um, in the friars, uh, in our community, sometimes we'll do like what we call a fraternal day when we'll try to do something together, apart from all the work we do, just let's do something together just to build the fraternity, to build the brotherhood in, in terms of secular thinking, like team building, you know, like we, we need to have good relationships with one another. So when I was a young friar, we went to the Metropolitan Museum. Anybody here love going to museums? Yeah, right? Art, sacred art. And at the Met, there's a lot of good Catholic Christian art and icons and all kinds of stuff. And so we were there, and um, there we were getting to see different areas of the museum, different types of art and whatnot. And I'll never forget coming around the corner, and I see this piece of art. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. I see this painting. And in the painting is a depiction of the crucifixion scene. So it's Jesus on the cross. And in the very middle of the picture is Jesus on the cross. And it was one of those scenes where uh, there's a lot going on. Sometimes you just may see an image of Jesus on the cross kind of like what we have right here in our chapel. And, and it's just Jesus on the cross. And that's beautiful. That can bring a certain focus. But in this painting, it was this whole scene of Calvary. So in the very center is Jesus on the cross. And on his right is the good thief on the cross. And on his left is the bad thief on the cross. And then down below the cross, there's all sorts of people. There's all sorts of things going on. And it was just one of those paintings that you could really 
if you've ever been at a museum and you see somebody standing before a piece of art, it just kind of pondering and looking and kind of thinking about it. And in, in the great tradition of Christian images, that's really what it's for, to lead us to contemplation and pondering and prayer and meditation. And so there we were. And for some reason, this particular painting really drew me. And it was like, I forgot about everything else. And I was just right before this image. And I'm praying with it. And it, and it struck me so powerfully that um, eventually one of my aunties got me a copy for a gift. <laughs> okay, so I have, I have it in my room. But as you pray over this image, you see Jesus in the very center. And to his right is the good thief on the cross. And below, all the saints. Mother Mary, St. John the Beloved, who was the only apostle who was at the cross, the other ones were hiding, and all the other holy ones on Jesus' right. And, you know, some of them have halos, and so you see this thing. And then I noticed on the left of Jesus, there's no halos, and it's all the sinful people. There's Roman soldiers, there's the Pharisees who orchestrated his crucifixion, and, and other random people. There, a couple of the soldiers are casting dice to see who gets the uh, the garment of Jesus. And it's and it really struck me that what this artist had done, he had presented the image of the, the crucifixion as an expression of the judgment of the world at the end of time in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells us that he will return again as king and all of humanity will be gathered before his throne and on the cross, Jesus is the king with his crown. The cross is his throne. And Jesus will separate humanity's sheep from the goats. On his right will be the sheep who are saved. Come you who are blessed of my father. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and ill and in prison and you visit, you know. And on his left, the goats. And he had done, he had painted the image of the crucifixion as this way, Jesus in the center as the king, as the judge on the throne, and then to the right, the sheep, and to the left, the goats. And it really is true theologically that the moment of the cross, when we, in some way, judged our God, it really was God judging us because at the cross, Jesus is revealing evil for what it is. All the masks are pulled off, and it's seen for what it is. And here is the detail that really captured me. On the right of Jesus, you see the good thief. And above him, there's an angel. And out of his mouth is coming a baby. It's the moment of his death. And this angel is almost like a midwife delivering the baby out of his mouth. And you know, when you die, there's that exhale. And then there's no more inhale. And for, you know, medieval and, and older people, that the idea was that was the moment your soul left. Even Jesus, as he dies on the cross, right, he breathes his last. So there's the image of the good thief. There's that baby, which is his soul, coming out of his mouth like being born, being delivered. And there's the angel to capture the baby to bring him to heaven. It is really something. And then my eyes were brought to the other side of the picture. And on the left of Jesus is the bad thief. And there's a baby coming out of his mouth. But there's a demon there. The demon has the baby by the hair. 
and is pulling the baby out of his mouth. And it's a symbol of damnation. <laughs> it is so striking when you see this image. My goodness. And again, it's, it's capturing something theologically true. That at the moment of death, it truly is a moment of birth into eternity. And we have that choice, right? If we try to serve God, we're humble, we're repentant of our sins. We accept the offer of forgiveness and grace and mercy. Or if we misuse the gift of free will and we choose to reject his offer of mercy, we choose sin, we choose to not try not to strive to be holy and follow God. In some ways, we give ourselves over to, well, what we call damnation, a life in hell apart from God. Um, you may have heard um, some of the preaching of the servant of God, Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen. It kind of was popular on TV in the 1950s, uh, opposite Milton Berle, and he had a bit of a flair for the dramatic. And I'll never forget one of his talks on death. And, and it, it's one of those things when you hear it, it, it really struck you. And it, it reminds me of this painting I've just described to you in, in one of his talks, Fulton Sheen has this line where he says, you know, the moment of death comes and when you close your eyes in this life and open them in the next, you see a face and the face says to you, mine. And it's either the face of God or the face of Satan. Oh, whoa, it's real. It's real. But I, after sharing that, which is a little bit of a dramatic comment, I want to bring it back to the point from the beginning. All along, it's been God's plan to save us, that we would be with him. God, the church teaches that God destines nobody to hell. He gives everybody the grace they need, sufficient grace to be saved. The universal salvific will of God, it is God's will that everyone would be saved. And he gives everyone the grace they need. That is so consoling. Now, the reality is that some people will reject that grace through the misuse of free will, and they will be damned. Hell is real. Damnation is real. Even the children in Fatima, right? They saw, they were given a vision of hell where people go who don't repent of their sin. They don't, res they don't accept the offer of mercy. But all along, it's been God's plan. The greatest pain, the greatest suffering in hell is separation from God, separation from the one who created us, separation from the one who loves us, separation from the one in whose image and likeness we're created, separation from the communion of love that we were made for. It's a place of isolation and sadness and rejection of love. And it's not like some sort of magical moment that only happens at death. Think the seeds of heaven and the seeds of hell are planted and grow even in this life, huh? Even in this life, as we strive for um, a life of holiness and grace, that we come to the Lord. That it was his plan all along that he wanted to be in communion with us. And that's my final point. Holy communion. The presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, born in a town called
called Bethlehem, which means house of bread, placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough. The plan of God was the Eucharist. This desire to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, to be in communion with each other, this is the means that he chose to make it happen, that we worship and we receive the Lord. We're nourished, we're fed, we're sustained through the Holy Eucharist, the bread of life and the chalice of everlasting salvation, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life within you, and I will raise you on the last day. This was God's plan. This is God's plan. Very center of it all is Jesus in the Eucharist, the Holy Mass, Holy Communion, the source and summit, the very center to which everything else is connected. It's here. It's Jesus sacramentally present in mystery, Holy Communion. So we come back to that image of being born at the moment of death, your soul being like a baby, the arms of God to be held close. It's beautiful. The beginning of the gospel of John, we're told that Jesus rests upon the bosom of the father. And then in John's last supper, John rests upon the bosom of Jesus as Jesus rests upon the bosom of the Father, he invites us to rest upon his bosom through Holy Communion. That great invitation, abide, remain in me as I remain in you. Amen. Thank you for listening. been listening to from the friars podcast the community of franciscan friars the renewal please visit us at franciscanfriars.com or on social media cfr underscore franciscans Mm -hmm.